It's Friday, April 22nd. A good Friday morning to you. Jesperson here with John Hicks, our technical producer. And I'm, I'm kind of bummed out for the second time as a big hockey fan, as a casual armchair hockey historian, bummed out again today. The loss of another great. Here we go again. Another all-time great Guy Lafleur, mm-hmm. uh, passing away. The, the I mean, 70 years of age, young guy. Um, he'd been battling lung cancer. They haven't talked today about cause of death, but he'd been fighting lung cancer one of the all-time great montreal canadians one of the all-time great yeah. uh canadian players players period of all time five stanley cups Guy lafleur on the heels of mike bossy's passing again young yeah. guy it's been a tough week for the hockey world and so we celebrate in the career and the legacy and mourn the loss of Guy lafleur today legends dropping and Guy lafleur what a career like amazing just, yeah five stanley cups Three Art Ross trophies as uh, scoring leader. Yeah. Two Hart trophies, a Conn Smythe as the playoff MVP. Three times the winner of the Lester B. Pearson Award, which is now the Ted Lindsay Award. That's the one I think that players love to, uh, they love to win the Cup. They love to win Lord Stanley. But for uh, trophies, the Ted Lindsay is, is as voted by your peers the most yeah. valuable player in the league. And so that's a big one. He won it three times. The first player for five seasons in a row to score 50. And 100 points. 50 goals, 100 points, five years in a row. Guy Lafleur was the first to do it. That's crazy. Imagine that today. Like, 50 points is, is hard. Yeah, 50 I mean, goals. Or yeah. 50 goals, right? Ovi just yeah. did it Ovi again. just did it. Becomes the that. oldest to do it. But it's it's super hard today. Right? We were talking about Ovechkin the other day, whether or not he he is the greatest of all-time goal scorer, whether or not Mike Bossy is, Wayne Gretzky is. I like these kind of debates. Oftentimes, though, they, they, they come because we remember somebody's career. So we think of the great Guy Lafleur today. Adam O'Brien's going to be joining us as part of our Real Talk Roundtable that's coming up on the show in about a half hour's time. We do it every single Friday. It'll be live 30 minutes from now. He is, of course, the founding CEO, you know, of our presenting sponsor, Bitcoin Well. We're going to be talking to captains of digital industry. He's going to be joined by Kolea Carrington. Both of them were speaking at the Alberta Technology Symposium this week. We want to learn about the future of tech and fintech, financial tech. People talk about it all. The blockchain, cryptocurrency. How does it fit into Alberta's post-pandemic economic recovery? I mean, let's get into it. Let's learn a little bit more. But a lot to happen between now and then. You can learn more about Bitcoin Well by following the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Sapria Devetti joining us every Friday in her regular time slot. That's uh, 8.40 Mountain Time, 10.40 Eastern. Political analyst coming up in uh, less than 10 minutes. But we get to start off this Friday. It kind of feels like a Friday. It's a feel-good Friday. We get to kick it off uh, by talking to a guy that I've known for a long time. Always makes me laugh, and uh, I'm certainly not alone. Paul Mercurio is an Emmy winner. He appears regularly on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He works on that show as well. You've seen him on HBO, his own Comedy Central special, and he just so happens to be hanging out in our home city of Edmonton uh, today, tomorrow, at Rick Bronson's The Comic Strip Comedy Club. You can still get tickets, I think, Paul Mercurio making his Real Talk debut. Pal, we've talked on television, we've talked on terrestrial radio, and here yeah. you are with me now, live streaming. It's good to have you. This is awesome, man. I love your new digs. It looks awesome. Uh, congratulations. The, the jacket. Thank you very, very nice. much. Thank you very much. Because I always felt like when I, when I would come in the studio with you, 
you never had a sport coat on. I thought, well, you know, you could class it up a little bit. So it's nice to see that you uh, showed a little respect and put a sport coat on. I could me. always tell when you walked in, there was always that sort of judgmental, like your eyes would sort of flit around the studio. I, I, I just felt it. By the way, we need to talk before we go on air about we're clashing. We got to plaid and plaid. We got to kind of coordinate this a little bit. My wife keeps telling me that clash is the new match. Oh, there you go. So, <laughs> so people are actually- watching this. People who go watch this thinking, did they call each other and go, what are you wearing? Yeah. What are you wearing? Yeah. I'm wearing plaid. You got to wear plaid. We're it's very, great to see you, man. We're it's very to see you. We're very on point right now. And it's <laughs> good to see you too. We would have loved to welcome you into studio. You're here. You're in Edmonton. You flew in from New York. I think well, you're you on the red eye, basically. You just yeah, I got in, I got a short in time yesterday. ago. Yeah. yeah, we did. Uh, it's funny because we had a late show taping. We taped Monday through Thursday at the late show. We did the show Wednesday night. I got on a plane. And uh, and then, you know, and now there's no show because Stephen came down. Stephen Colbert came down with COVID, as you may have seen or heard. So, well, it's we don't know. it's kind yeah. of been making the rounds with the team. A there. Like, didn't, didn't you? You got walloped a couple of times, didn't you? I had it twice. I had it in 2020 and then I had it again about three months ago. I'm vaxxed and boosted, but <clears throat> I got the Omicron because well, I want I heard, you know, all the kids were talking about the Omicron and I want to see what the kids were talking about. You know, FOMO. I wanted to be yeah. hip. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> And it, man, I got to tell you, it's a, when you, I got it the first time I'm a long hauler. I'm still tired from it a lot. And um, it's the only time in our life where you get sick and you go and you say, I'm sick. And they normally give you something like a pill or a prescription. They can't give you anything because they don't know anything about it still. Right. Like, so I would go in, especially early on in 2020. And I'm like, I got, uh, I lost my sense of taste and smell. The doctor's got like a checklist. Yep. Yep. And I, um, and I'm, I'm tired all the time. Yep. We hear that. And I got shooting pains in my arms. Yep. We heard that. You could say anything like every Tuesday frogs crawl out of my butt. Yep. I heard that. We had that. <laughs> it's like, and, and there's nothing that they can do except give you some pills. And so it's been really, it's really exhausting. And then New York shut down in a way that I had never seen it before. And it was so weird because mm you get used to that noise and that energy and then it's dead quiet and it freaked me out to the point where just so I could feel normal again every morning at 6 a.m I would jackhammer outside people's windows just so I could feel (laughs) like things were back to normal again public servant Paul Mercurio doing what he can you know what I mean but this is when I knew things were coming back to normal you know how New York City cab drivers can be. They're a little volatile. Let's put it that way, right? So these two guys get into an, a fight over a parking spot, and they both get out. I swear to God, this happens. They both get out of the cab, and they're both wearing masks, and they square off in the street, and they start to, like, <laughs> fight each other. And then one of them realizes, oh, I'm supposed to have six feet of distancing. So he's fighting, but then he backs up, but he keeps fighting. So he's, like, doing – it was, and then he gets close, and then he backed up. And then it was like watching three-year-olds fight. It was like, eh, eh. It was, un, it was hilarious. So, and uh, and I just, you know, so I've just been kind of going with the flow, you know, and and uh, trying to. And I also found when I was quarantined, which was twice, I lost my mind. Like, mm. and I think everybody at home at one point, we were all at home, and I started working on the house to keep myself busy. But then I realized that I needed to like get a life because I needed stainless steel screws for this thing I was working on. And I ordered them on Amazon. This is how bored I was. I started tracking the shipment of screws on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm literally like screaming, 
what are they doing in Chicago? They should be here by now. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta get out of the house. Like, do you have mixed feelings about because I we've spoken before. You come from a retail family. Like, I know your parents had yeah. like an institution in retail. Do you do you have mixed feelings about shopping on Amazon? Uh, a, a little bit because I come from a mom and pop shop. Yeah, you know, my parents had a furniture store. We just closed the store. Sixty three years. My mother had it. She's wow. ninety four. Yeah, she will not go down either. We try everything. Uh, <laughs> Bad milk, you know, bad cheese. She just bounces back up like a little Italian weeble. No, she's. I listen. I, it is so exhausting because she's such. She's a pioneer. She started a business in 1960, when women of that generation generally didn't do that. Let alone go to work. Let alone start a business. It was amazing. But like, she's so headstrong, and she won't buy anything. She found. She grew up with a depression, so she has a hearing aid. And she found it in the garbage because she goes through garbage to look for stuff that's broken and needs to be fixed. And it doesn't work. It just, it just, oh, that's all. You take her for a walk and suddenly 15 dogs are following you. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then we close the store and she's a pack rat and anybody watching, listening, probably have somebody like that in your family or you're that person. So my mom has had stuff from like 1970. So my brother and I are trying to dismantle this store that's 63 years. There's stuff everywhere. So we're taking stuff and we're throwing it out. So then I turn back and the thing that I just threw out is now back on the table, right? It was like catalogs or whatever. I throw it out again and it shows up again. And I'm like, and I, my mother was like, oh, I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure. So this is how you have to throw stuff out with my mother. You know, the scene in The Godfather with a young Robert De Niro the, you know, he's the young godfather, shoots the guy in the stairwell, the white <laughs> okay. guy in the white, so he shoots him in the cheek, and then he goes up onto the roof, and he takes the gun, and he breaks the gun into a bunch of pieces, and he stuffs it in different pipes. That's how you have to throw stuff out. So, like, if this is a piece of paper, you have to rip the paper up, and then you have to take the different pieces and throw them in different garbage cans. Like, I was going to supermarkets and throwing them in their, like, dumpster because she'll get them and put them back together again. Insane. Unbelievable. Pal, <laughs> next time you're here in town, we got to get together in person. We're going to have a shiny new studio. I'm looking for it. In the meantime, people can check you out this weekend at Rick Bronson's The Comic Strip on Berman Street, West Edmonton Mall. Still some tickets for tonight, tomorrow. People can check out wem.thecomicstrip.ca. Emmy winner Paul Mercurio. It's great to have you making your debut on Real Talk. Thanks for doing hey, it. Hey, man. Love you, man. Congratulations. You're the best. Thanks for having me on. I'll see you definitely in studio when I come back. And yeah. if you're coming to New York, I keep telling you, let me know. We'll, oh, uh, no, I'm going to take you up on it. You, you keep reiterating it, which that's verbal contract. I've already talked to my team. They've told me you're locked in. So you got to you got to wear the plaid sport coat, though. Yeah, you gotta oh, wear that. Um, we're just getting started on the matchy matchy stuff here, buddy. This world <laughs> world is our oyster. That's Paul Macario. Go check him out this weekend at the comic strip. Again, wem.thecomicstrip.ca. Sapria Devetti coming up in literally one minute. Let me remind you right now that Athabasca University is Canada's online university. Such a cool conversation yesterday with Katrina Ingram, uh, ethically aligned AI. She's the CEO there. She's uh, been named one of the uh, what is it, uh, the hundred most powerful women in That's AI it. ethics for yeah. 2022. Boy, did she know her stuff yesterday, helping us understand this story about Clearview AI and facial recognition technology and the war in Ukraine and the controversy and law enforcement. If you missed that interview, make sure you check it out. She's also one of the lecturers at the PowerEd micro-certification for AI ethics. This is all part of what Athabasca University offers. Of course, if you're looking to do a, a degree or a diploma, work certification, new professional credentials, anything involving AI, 
AI. And of course, we're talking about blockchain and, and the tech consortium, uh, tech symposiums later today. We always want to be looking future facing. Like, what are these big stories? Athabasca University has its finger on that pulse and it is graduating some of Canada's most well-researched, well-equipped job candidates. Your future could start today when you sign up for your future learning at Athabasca University, Canada's online university at AthabascaU.ca. And this is a shout out to all the families that are working right now. If every spare minute you find, you're working to find a perfect fit for your loved one that wants to age in place, that's looking for home care services. Infinity Healthcare's team does personality matching to ensure they find the perfect fit so your loved one is receiving the care that they need, taking their medication, eating their meals, the laundry's done, the cleaning's done, everything's looked after, so you and your family have peace of mind and there is consistency and dignity of care. You can check them out online at infinity-8.ca. Well, our next guest is, uh, I mean, we just say our favorite. Uh, we used to say one of our favorites because then other guests would come on and say, like, what the yeah. hell? We thought we were one of the favorites, too. She quickly became my favorite after the yeah. first time I saw her on the show. Now we just go, yeah, no, Sapria Devetti's the favorite. You, you see her on Power and Politics. You see her writing, of course, columns, uh, national newspapers, outlets. Of course, she's a political strategist, analyst, has been a campaign advisor in past. She's a lawyer, and she's a member of our editorial board. Every Friday, she joins us. We're rolling in a couple minutes late. I apologize, but Paul Mercurio just touched down from New York City. I had to check in with that guy. Uh, did you have a... He talks about his family in retail and his mom and her traditions and how that sort of either did pass on or didn't pass on to him with the way that he keeps stuff or collects stuff. Did your parents' chosen profession or quirkiness or otherwise rub off on you? Do you look at traits that you see in your parents and do you see them in you now as a grown adult? Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, hard not to, right? In, in a way, um, you are who you are in terms of your family. And I would say I'm very much in a lot of ways, a lot like my dad, but my mom's sort of cleanliness has really, and I put that in air quotes because it's cleanliness to the point where like, if something's askew in, you know, the entryway, it, it would drive her crazy. And I always thought to myself, oh, I'm never going to be that way. Um, but I'm absolutely that way. Like if my husband puts his like briefcase or something down into the, as soon as he walks in without like putting it where it should go, um, yeah, I get annoyed. And, uh, I just, I, now I'm, I guess, uh, very slowly morphing into a middle-aged Indian auntie and that is, <laughs> it is what it is, you know, it's not a bad thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah we're, we have the same dynamic in our household where Carrie has this like front bench in our front entryway and it's, and it's, uh, when it's working properly, when everything is aligned as it's supposed to go, there should be sort of her bag for the next day, the little man's school bag, and then my bag that I take to work. And they should all sort of like be evenly spaced on the bench and with the shoes at the front door properly organized. But I, I'll admit I'm guilty. Even leaving today, when I was walking out of the house, I'm, I'm wearing these kind of slip-on boots uh, from Poppy Barley. Love them. Anyway, I digress. And, 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 but I'm about like three or four steps from the door. And I'm going to put them on and I hear from the kitchen. She goes, I know you're not putting your boots on and then walking across the dining room floor. <laughs> and, I, and I went, no, you're right. I'm not. Nope. 100%. You're right. I'm not taking the extra four steps. So always learning, my friend. Always learning. Um, we love opportunities to catch up with you. We want to sort of take a look at what's making news in the national news cycle and sort of make sense of political stories. And I want to ask you, uh, Pierre Polyev's making all the noise on the campaign uh, right now for the conservative leadership. But 
But there was another story, and, and I'm not saying that this is the biggest story in Canada right now, but, but I wanted to lead off and ask you about it. Conservative leadership candidate Leslie Lewis, an MP, uh, Dr. Lewis, claiming that Bill Gates is behind a plot against Canada, uh, telling her supporters that the proposed treaty under the World Health Organization will let Microsoft's creator undermine Canadian sovereignty. And it feels unprofessional to make the sound that a cuckoo clock might. Uh, but yeah. that's my official assessment of this story. How about you? I, I mean, that it is what it, it it is that though, right? It's like cuckoo, crazy pants, banana, whatever. Like this is it's nutty stuff. Um, and so again, let's just rewind a little bit. So Leslie Lewis, as you mentioned, she's an MP, uh, and this is now her second go at running for leadership for the Conservative Party, right? And so she puts out this bonker statement. It was actually last week that she put it out um, it, about some yet to be drafted. WHO accord uh, would somehow mean that Canada no longer has sovereignty over its pandemic response. And she specifically stated that under this treaty, Canada would essentially be surrendering our national health sovereignty to the WHO when it comes to responding to pandemics. And then there's like a throwaway line in there about the Gates Foundation being behind much of the funding of the WHO. And so, you know, with private uh, donors come private interests, et cetera, et cetera. Now, again, yet to be drafted, but what the WHO is actually calling for is multilateral cooperation when it comes to pandemic prevention, preparedness, response. So none of that is like untoward, right? Um, it's just basically trying to get members to coordinate when it comes to all of this stuff, like pandemic monitoring alerts, increasing targets for PPE and vaccines. And so Press Progress reported on this a couple of days ago, and it's just, it's weird that we have a pretty well-known conservative MP um, who in the last leadership race um, sort of played kingmaker for Erin O'Toole because yeah. uh, a lot of her supporters, when she dropped off the ballot, ended up supporting O'Toole. And now she's a candidate for the second time espousing a blatant conspiracy theory. And it's not really garnering a lot of attention in terms of, you know, when we're talking about the race and from more established legacy political reporters and, I don't know. That to me is a little bit disheartening because shouldn't we be calling this stuff out? Isn't it important to let folks know what isn't isn't true? She's a smart person, right? Like I, it, She's I a guess lawyer. she should know about the treat, like how this isn't like actually, you know, going to be binding for domestic policy. Yeah, I don't know why. Yesterday, it kind of it, it made me think of Maxime Bernier. Actually, he's the first one that I thought of because I and and you and I have talked about this in past, and I've tried to figure it out for myself. Like, was Maxime Bernier? always Mad Max. I mean, I know that he had his sort of moments, you know, dating the gal associated with the motorcycle gang and leaving sensitive government documents at her house. And like there were those sort of like inconveniences when he was a cabinet minister under Stephen Harper, who, who famously ran a pretty tight ship. But nobody called him Mad Max at the time, right? It, it wasn't until everything went sideways and he lost the conservative, barely lost the conservative leadership by like a percentage point or so. And then started the People's Party of Canada and then started appealing to I'm doing air quotes for those listening to the podcast like to that crowd right and and shaving off like peeling off like depending on the, the region of Canada you're talking about five or seven or like 10 percent of the conservative vote in some ridings but I look at it and I'd see him on the campaign trail and I'd always sort of mutter to myself like Max you know better right it just feels performative it feels opportunistic do you think that Dr. Lewis is playing the same hand no, I don't, um, for what it's worth. And, you know, again, for what it's worth, I feel like it's worse if 
it is opportunistic and you don't actually believe the stuff that you're saying and you're only saying it because you think uh, it'll, you know, garner you political opportunities or financial opportunities if you're doing it in the non-political space, but you're doing it for, you know, clicks or, or donations. There's a huge financial incentive for folks to be nutty and to call for other people to be nutty. At least in Lewis's case, I do believe this is genuine, but it doesn't make it any less problematic in terms of what that does to our discourse, right? And like, it's incredibly important to be able to call this sort of stuff out because uh, the normalization of this sort of rhetoric is bad. Like there's no other way to, to put it. And it just, it strikes me as very weird because we're a country that in all other respects, we can only ever really compare ourselves to the States, right? That's why we can never have a proper conversation about healthcare reform because then, uh, you know, America gets dragged in and we're like, well, we don't want an American healthcare system. So we can't do anything about it, uh, about ours. And it's the best in the way. But it, we know what happens when conspiracy theories are normalized and when you know, you have differences in terms of facts, and I'm putting that in air quotes because they're often not real facts, but when you have two populations that are essentially effectively living in different siloed information bubbles and their political discourse is, again, off the charts bananas when it comes to uh, conspiracy theories and thinking, you know, a, a substantive chunk of their population still thinking that the 2020 election was somehow stolen, um, and I'm not sure why we're not using that as a warning sign for us. And of course, there's all sorts of other jurisdictions that we should be taking warnings and lessons from, but the U.S. is right there. And in all other respects, we can only ever compare ourselves to them. But when it comes to this, it's like, well, we're fine. Mm. And it's like, why are we fine? We're not mm. going to be fine. If this becomes more and more normal, that's not fine. And Lewis, you know, I don't expect, I, I, I haven't seen recent polling to this effect, but I, I, I expect she's at, you know, third or fourth day down um, in terms of who conservatives are going to be uh, choosing. Um, but it's not as though she's an unknown quantity. And it's not as though the presumptive front runner of the race, Pierre Polyev himself, hasn't also espoused conspiracy theories, most recently with respect to the Great Reset, um, sure. which is, right? And like, it's, this is, it's just, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for our democracy and we should, we should be able to call it out, but we don't. Yeah. This is always the case when you're on, I have like a million things I want to talk to you about. Like Max Bernier, even tweeting, I don't have it handy right now. I could scroll and look for it, but, but his sort of dystopian future, he posted, I think a photo was it, wasn't it of Singapore or something like that, or of Hong Kong, which um, I think has, has been voted or assessed by Forbes, I think was the source as the most capitalistic city in, in, on planet earth. But Maxime Bernier painted the picture. I think he's in 2040 in Canada. Was it that everyone would be living in tall skyscrapers downtown and um, nobody would own anything, but we would all be happy. And the responses were pretty amazing. Like people were sort of going, what's the catch here? Like what's, what's wrong yeah. with this future you propose? But there, there is this sort of idea um, and it's not just on the right, but certainly we're seeing it this week from the right that uh, that the sky is falling, that every, it's, it's a nightmare pending, uh, that they're coming for your wealth, they're coming for your bank account. And that whole great reset thing, the conversation around that doesn't exactly help direct that conversation in an accurate way. No, it doesn't. And, you know, this sort of stuff, like the conspiracy theory stuff in the online world, 
it has all sorts of implications in the real world, right? And so like Pizzagate is a great example um, where there was this conspiracy theory about John Podesta, who is the uh, campaign you know, chair for Hillary Clinton's campaign, as well as a bunch of other high-ranking Democrats were in a pizza parlor basement that didn't exist, mind you, but were in this basement committing all sorts of horrendous uh, th- crimes against children. And a guy showed up at that pizza parlor with a gun uh, to save those kids that didn't exist in a basement that didn't exist because of a theory that was completely baseless. And so I'm really not sure why we didn't look at that and the ensuing years from that as a warning sign and why we're just sort of like letting all of this go. And I mean, it's like we don't pay attention to it until something horrendous happens and then it's already too late and it's so hard to get the toothpaste back into the tube once it's already out and i fear that our you know normalcy bias of thinking that nothing bad can ever really happen to us really afflicts a lot of our political reporting because we end up presenting the two parties ever in contention to form government in this country as being completely equal when it comes to this stuff. And you're right that there's a lot of conspiracy stuff that happens on the left too. And I'm not, I'm not dissuading that or, or saying that it doesn't exist in, in, in any way, but there aren't really you know, high profile major liberals or NDPers that are saying legitimate conspiracy theory stuff and are trying mm. to fundraise off of it right now. Yeah, and seeing fundraising happen. Uh, Here's the Bernier tweet, by the way. It's 2040. Canada welcomes 2 million immigrants every year. Almost everyone lives in densified large cities and uses public transportation because combustion engine cars are banned and EVs cost a fortune. No one owns much, but everyone is happy. That's Maxime Bernier's tweet that saw some traction earlier today. Um, Talking about where people are living, densified large cities. You probably know where I'm just spelling this one out. But Pierre Polyev, Johnny stacked up two videos, two Polyev statements. Uh, You tell me if you think they're contradictory. You tell me if you think he's a hypocrite. You tell me if he got himself all twisted up or not. Uh, The audience is going to hear Pierre Polyev just a couple of weeks ago talking about the rising cost of housing in particular uh, in British Columbia. And then reporters circle back a couple of weeks later, just recently this week, and ask him about his own investments buying up suburban detached residences and turning them into rental properties. And this is the division we're seeing in our country that's very, very dangerous, I think. You co-own a real estate investment firm in Calgary, and your wife also owns a rental property in Ottawa that she doesn't live in. Buying and renting properties as an investment can contribute to increased competition in the housing market, so aren't you contributing to that problem? No, not at all. We're helping solve the problem by providing affordable rental accommodations to two deserving families. Okay, and as a follow-up, economists have warned Canadians against using equity in their homes as an ATM, and your wife last summer took out a $425,000 mortgage on her rental property. That's nearly twice what she paid for it. Why did she decide to do that? Well, she the she uh, took uh, followed all of the rules and used um, the equity that she has built up through a very responsible and intelligent investment uh, to uh, maximize uh, the, uh, uh, the the best interests of uh, of uh, her financial position. And uh, she has my wife has followed all the rules and reported all of her financial decisions uh, to the ethics commissioner. Uh, as the rules uh, require. That's my wife.
<laughs> we just wanted to roll it right. To, that's my wife. Yeah, that was Pierre Pulliam. Is he twisted up here or can both be true? Both cannot be true, but l- let me first defend him a little bit, okay? He's not alone in this. Um, a bunch of MPs do own rental or investment properties, including about a third of the Liberal cabinet, as was reported by by Global News, right? So he is a hypocrite, but he's not the only hypocrite, I, I suppose, um, is a way to put it. There was a report last week that was uh, put out by StatsCan that basically said that Canadians who are buying multiple properties, you know, who own second homes as investment properties or, you know, three, four properties are directly contributing to these rising prices. Um, and it's very easy to see why, obviously, if you have a, a, a an outsized number of properties that are uh, going out to fewer and fewer people because they're collecting them for investment purposes and not for actual living purposes, then you're taking up a huge amount of the supply and you can't claim to be offering solutions if you're directly contributing actively to the problem. So it's, I think this will bite him in the butt a a little bit as it should, and it should bite quite frankly, a lot of the other MPs uh, and those, you know, the third of the liberal cabinet in the butt as well, because if you actually care about the housing crisis and you want to be providing solutions, then you got to provide solutions without also being part of the problem. And right now we're, we're just not seeing that from our political class. This is where I kind of, uh, I, I sort of try to just be real life here and, yeah. and, and say like we have high expectations of politicians and people love when they, you know, paint themselves into a corner or, or a journalist paints them into a corner and we go, aha, you were talking about the problem with, you know, rising cost of living. And then here you are perpetuating the problem. And then at the same time, you know, Pierre Polyev is going to get like my wife made a legal investment and she invested in property and it was a good investment and she pulled out some equity and did something with it like millions of people do all around the world sure. and across the country. And I go, yeah, like, quite frankly, regardless. Now, this is going to piss off somebody that's right now. I talked to a guy yesterday named Adam, a real talker named Adam from Kamloops, and he's been trying to get into the housing market out there. He and his wife moved to B.C. He says that housing prices in Kamloops have gone up. 50% Supriya in two years. He says it's wild. Houses that were 500,000 that the average family could consider are now 750, 800 superheated, multiple offers. And that's not just in Kamloops. And so it is a problem for sure. And if you're like Adam and you're experiencing that, then what I'm about to say will piss you off. But at the same time, do we really also want to be in a market where we're limiting or heavily taxing what people can do with investing in properties? I mean, Polyev made a pretty decent point. I thought that was pretty quick thinking for a politician. His team probably prepped him, I guess. But, you know, we're helping. We're making a place available for hardworking rental families. I mean, you know, the system does require, I know it's a dirty word these days, but landlords so how do we find that reasonable balance where people can invest in property it's not necessarily 100 percent a bad thing but it is perpetuating a problem at the same time we can't ignore it i mean one way you can go about it is you're radically increasing supply right so if you radically increase supply then there's no there's will be less of a crunch but the ultimate issue i think and you just sort of touched on it there is that we still very much in this country treat property as an investment and not as a physical place to live. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is somewhat problematic. And this is why our conversation generally around housing is so problematic, because we're only ever really talking 
about home ownership and we're not really talking about increasing rental stock. And so all of these things that you've mentioned with respect to, you know, folks being in, in the real world, I mean, well, what would be so bad if we did actually put um, more onerous regulations with respect to owning multiple properties? I, I mean, you know, we're, we're not exactly um, a country in which uh, housing hasn't been an issue for a long time, but it's getting to a point where, you know, as you mentioned that Real Talk are talking about Kamloops, I mean, I can think of about a half a dozen examples in Ontario um, wherein a very, you know, much smaller communities are finding it more and more difficult uh, for places to be affordable. And that has all sorts of, you know, implications down the line, particularly when you're looking at what some of our immigration targets are. Like, where are all those people going to live, yeah. right? Um, and I think the other part of this that really gets me is that if you are, you know, a geriatric millennial like I am, chances are you got into the housing market in the GTA or Vancouver or, you know, pick your whatever urban center here um, because of parental or family help. And I, I think it's very dangerous for us to become a society in which you can only really own a home if you yourself are the descendant of a homeowner who is able to front you the cash for a down payment because yeah. I, I mean, aren't we, we're basically regressing as a society in that case. And, you know, upward mobility becomes uh, less, becomes much less attainable. I think of conversations we have, we have this uh, virtual poker game once a month, me and university pals, and we live in different cities across Canada, Pacific Northwest as well. And it's kind of funny when someone in Manitoba announces that they've bought a house, the group says, congratulations. And when a buddy in Vancouver announces he's bought a house, people go, how? It's yeah. <laughs> the first thing you say. When you live in Edmonton, you kind of get used to like underhanded compliments from time to time. Did you happen to see this editorial from the editorial board in the Globe? You'll never guess which city yeah. has the answer to Canada's housing crisis, which kind of reminded me of that Hyundai car ad back in the day. You remember their tagline used to be, yes, Hyundai. And I was always like, yeah. that's a weird tagline. <laughs> did you have a chance to check it out? What did you make of it? Edmonton's solution. It doesn't come into effect for the next couple of years, but easing parking minimums, some big zoning changes. Yeah, it's great. And look, I noticed the tone from the, because it was a Globe editorial that that had put this out and it was very much like, I don't know, like the jock in high school being like, hey, look at that nerd. And with her glasses off, she's <laughs> semi-decent. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. it was it was very weird. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's, it's interesting that uh, so much of our housing issue is at the hyper-local level, right? And so We've been talking a lot about the federal government. I know provincial governments um, are, are talking about it as well, but we really need municipalities to kind of step up to the plate and rejig how they um, zone things. And I mean, if you walk around some of the older areas in, in Toronto and the Globe editorial does point this out, um, it's a lot better in terms of uh, lower rise apartments, you know, duplexes, triplexes, um, all in the mix with, single detached homes and it's like that's how it should be uh because we need people to live places and if we're gonna keep allowing you know single detached homeowners to effectively poo poo any process of getting more middle density housing built then we're gonna be screwed forever so like something's got to give and i think local government is the way to do it and it's just a shame that so much of our conversation about housing 
uh, is about, you know, higher orders of government and not necessarily at the local level. Yeah, fair enough. Because, yeah, nobody wants to take responsibility for the hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. that it takes to actually kickstart this stuff. Uh, in closing, uh, I am going to put you on the spot. Just a warning, our unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll yesterday. Uh, we teed up Earth Day yesterday, had a roundtable great researchers talking about plastic and indigenous conservation methods and, and uh, water resources and really great stuff. Uh, talked about uh, a consortium that's working to fight and defend Edmonton's River Valley. And so thinking we would have an inspiration audience we asked will you do something specific to recognize earth day which is today and 65 percent of respondents went yeah honestly no um will you do anything today do you see it as performative what's earth day to sapria devetti well i answered that poll for what it's oh worth. what did you answer and- Every day is Earth Day. Oh, uh, well done. <laughs> which is kind of a cop out um, because I'm not doing anything, you know, particularly special to mark the occasion. I do think some of Earth Day is performative, much like all of these days, right? Everyone wants to show how great they are by doing something specific. But, you know, the reality is we all need to do a little bit. Um, and I think it's treating the environment as something we shouldn't be taking for granted um, is is a good thing for people to sort of internalize. And I just wish we were in a place and time where we could do bigger, better things um, when it comes to the environment without getting, you know, mired in a lot of partisan, hyper-polarized discourse. And once upon a time, that used to be the case. Mm. We used to be able to do that. We closed the ozone layer. We stopped acid rain. All sorts of things that we did back when it was like seen as a collective good and not just a right thing versus a left thing. And did we actually stop acid rain or because I always hear people well, we, just saying look, that, that acid rain was proven to not be a thing. OK, hang on. You chime in. Johnny wants to chime in. We did. I, I'm not sure about that one. I Wasn't know. We, it, I know we closed like the hole in the ozone pretty yeah. much. And uh, Supriya we, was. So, sorry, go ahead, Johnny. No, you go. You and won't. that was from uh, like the the CFRs or whatever we were spraying. But I'm not sure about acid rain. I know it's been reduced CFCs. a lot. When you CFCs, CFCs yeah. when you switched to gel from, from hairspray, hairspray <laughs> Johnny single handedly saved North America. The one guy, yeah, the, the one guy. But was it yeah, was because no, that was so Ronald Reagan's big thing, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm talking about like collective action, like like mm. uh, like having it seen as like something that everyone should be doing, mm. right? Yeah. So like when when acid rain was in the public consciousness, um, treaties were signed, and the rhetoric around it wasn't hyper polarized. You had both, you know, the left and the right coming to an agreement that something needed to be done. Uh, same thing when we're talking about chlorofluorocarbons and, and you know, the, the ozone layer. Like there's all sorts of uh, great examples of the 80s where you had politicians from various partisan leanings all coming to be like, yeah, okay, let's, let, let's do something about this. And then, yeah. you know, here we are with a changing climate and a good chunk of the population denying that it's happening or denying that there's anything that can be done about it. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I guess maybe, I don't know, politics are done differently. Elections are won differently um, and it's costing us. And I appreciate that we have a continued conversation about it. I promised you when you agreed to join us every Friday, I would never keep you past 11, 10 (laughs) Eastern. And that is right now, which means I'm about to lose my privileges. So I'm going to say thank you. Happy Earth Day. And we'll talk to you again in a week. Sounds good, Ryan. Happy Earth Day to you, too. That's our absolute favorite. Sapria Duvetti, you can catch her every Friday here on the show uh, at 840 Mountain Time. That's 1040 Eastern Live. Or as we say on Real Talk Live or Later. 
at ryanjesperson.com. We're going to be talking to uh, captains of digital industry. That's our Real Talk Roundtable on this Friday edition of the show. First, I want to talk to you about Kubi Energy. Feels like a, a perfect opportunity to mention this on Earth Day in the context of what Sapria is talking about. I checked in with their team yesterday. We check in with our sponsors. We say, what's something that Real Talkers need to know? What's something they should know about? So Jake, the CEO over there, tells me that if you live in the city of Edmonton proper, if you happen to live in our home city of Edmonton, you know there's two credits or programs or incentives available right now, two of them, and you can couple them up together. If you're looking to install solar on your home, the Edmonton one right now, and I think as soon as we say this, the number might bump up to 100, but it's 98% subscribed, which means that there's only 2% of that available funding left, which means like it's going to dry up this weekend. So why sleep on it? Why not make the call now? You've been thinking about solar for ages. You can get in touch with Kubi today at kubienergy.ca. Get that free quote, get the ball rolling, and then they'll handle all the paperwork. Kubi Energy, solar energy solutions to power your life. Now, once you've got solar installed in your place, once you're plugged into the grid, you know, you can sell it back. And not at this six cents stuff you hear people talking about. Park Power has an incentive, a solar rebate buyback for their customers that's making a big difference, like four or five hundred percent what you're going to see from other utility providers. Check it out for yourself at parkpower.ca. And when you're over there signing up or checking out the rates, how they stack up to what you're paying now, make sure you punch in that promo code 2022-REALTALK. It'll knock $70 off your first bill. In the context of Earth Day today, our friends at Eden Landscaping want to remind you about the important role that pollinators play in our ecosystem. You know, the bees, right? And other insects that are drawn to certain types of vegetation. These insects benefit the ecosystem and that vegetation looks so much better than just a boring front lawn. All that grass that only your mower is happy to see. Eden Landscaping is on the cutting edge of innovative, ecologically sensitive, and eco-friendly landscape design. You can learn more about what they're doing at Eden Landscaping today by checking out landscapeedmonton.ca. And if your weekend plans include grocery shopping and you happen to be in Alberta, keep an eye out for your local Friesen Brothers family owned for more than 65 years mike's meals are one of the features that you can check out online they've got the monthly feature this month it's the wild mushrooms fresh onion sauteed the creamy cheese sauce on an old world french baguette it's mike's meals mushroom melt Plus, of course, if you're still looking for Mother's Day plans, they've got their all-you-can-eat Mother's Day brunch for $25 a person, available all day, Sunday, May 8th, at select Friesen Brothers locations. You can find out more at Friesen.com. Well, every Friday, right around this time, we present the Real Talk Roundtable, where we look to bring in experts of industry, experts that are making an impact in their communities that understand well, not just what's happening right now, but what's happening down the road. How do we better learn about the issues around us, the opportunities that exist? How do we understand some of the things we see discussed in the news, but maybe don't know much about? That certainly describes this week for me as we welcome two captains of digital industry. You hear us talking about Bitcoin well every morning. Our presenting sponsor, the founding CEO of that company, is Adam O'Brien, a good friend of the show who appears to be on vacation. I want to find out where he's at. Rocky Mountains in the background. Also oh, joined by Kalea Carrington. Uh, she is the CEO of Absolute Combustion International. She's also the executive director of the Canadian Blockchain Consortium. They just hosted the Alberta Tech Symposium in Calgary earlier this week. Welcome to both of you. AOB, where are you at right now? 
I am in Banff. Oh. We were at a uh, marketing uh, uh, conference learning about branding and creating a community uh, in Banff. So it's been an awesome week. Oh, good stuff. Well, thanks for making time for us in this beautiful morning in Banff. Kalea, making your debut on the show. It's great to connect with you. I want to talk to you about the, the uh, Canadian Blockchain Consortium. Both of you, I know, participating in the Alberta Tech Symposium that was down in Calgary earlier this week. Uh, You were a big part of the group that put it on. Uh, I would imagine, obviously, you're excited about it, but what was the vibe down there? Who was drawn down there? What was the main focus as we talk about economic recovery these days? Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, I would say that it was it was a really incredible draw that we had down there. We had tech leaders from machine learning space, the fintech space, the blockchain space, the IoT space. And the goal of the event was really just to showcase how incredible our technology ecosystem is, how we're cohesively coming together, and how we're really trying to position Alberta as that Silicon Valley of the North. Uh, The vibe was excited. Everyone was really enjoying themselves. There was great food, great drinks, amazing conversation. What I really appreciated was the comments we got back was just the quality of people in the room. It was the decision makers and it was the executives that were there to like make business happen. What make business happen. I love that you said that. What does it take to to make a jurisdiction like for now, we'll say Alberta uh, to make a jurisdiction, the Silicon Valley of the North. Like we we look at natural resources that Alberta has and we, you know, we just so happen to be standing on top of, of the oil sands or of these natural gas reserves or what have you. But is it more political will or business incentives or, or a culture? What is it that, that allows for a jurisdiction to brand itself or to manifest a Silicon Valley vibe? Well, one, uh, like Silicon Valley, it has talent. It has an incredible amount of talent, and we have talent here. We have some of the best academic institutions in the world putting out some of the best technology talent. So we are actually third in the world for machine learning, and that's based on what's happening out in Edmonton. We are leading the country uh, in terms of blockchain. So in terms of like the technology talent, we have that. Where you have the talent, you also attract the money. Silicon Valley has that. They have investors that are willing to invest in these incredible technology entrepreneurs and make their businesses flourish. And then we also have this pioneering spirit, like they're very resilient, they're not willing to give up, and they're here to support our primary resource industries from energy and agriculture, mining, logistics, supply chain, you name it. Our technology industry is like the foundational piece for our natural resources. So because we're having all that, we're seeing a massive influx of companies coming from around the world to set up shop here because we're very resource rich, we're talent rich, and our ecosystem is really willing to come together and showcase everything that's going on. Adam, we can obviously talk about your company, about Bitcoin well, but do you see it like what Kole is describing? Do you see that? Um, people talk about fintech, like, you know, financial tech in the markets, and, and I barely know the, the terminology of it, but do you see it happening around you? Yeah, definitely. I think that what the Alberta Tech Symposium highlighted too was how excited the government is to step in and help out. I mean, Ryan, you and I have been talking about Bitcoin for nearly a decade now, and uh, and and you've 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 watched my personal journey through the struggles of like not having that government help, not yeah. having that government buy-in, and now that we have politicians excited about the industry, embracing the industry, creating regulatory sandboxes for the industry, uh, we in our in our space downtown that's you know under construction but should be opening up here soon, we're talking about making it a Bitcoin hub, a a, a fintech crypto blockchain hub downtown Edmonton with the government very very excited to kind of make that happen so it's been an absolute blast kind of the last 18 months and and specifically the last six months and I think 
um, largely uh, thanks to the good work of Kalea at the at the at the uh, blockchain consortium, um, making it happen and engaging with the right people to make them excited about what the industry has and what the potential of this industry is going to be. You talk about, I mean, the support of politicians. We've seen it. I know that the Alberta government, uh, Jason Kenney's government, has been talking about it and looking to manifest that and make it a destination. Obviously, sees economic potential there. Um, the front runner for conservative leadership here, Poliev, has been talking about Bitcoin, which I know has sort of dragged it into the political space. I want to ask you about that, by the way. I was talking to your employee, the, the crown jewel that is Benny at Bitcoin Well, about this. And, he, <laughs> and you know, Benny, he kind of goes, ah, you know, he, he, he he's such a good, n- nice guy. He goes, I, he goes, it's not my preference that it's becoming politicized, but I want to ask you about that. But why do you think, because it's not, Adam, just that you haven't necessarily had support in past from politicians or from big banks for that matter, but there's actually been a hostility. It's actually been sort of counter supportive. So so what do you think changed aside from maybe political opportunity? What have you seen that has drawn that political support, do you think? I think in large part, it's been education. I think that politicians are asking the right questions, talking to the right people um, and being engaged by like, again, like I cannot say enough good things about the blockchain consortium and how much they've done for um, for engaging the right people and engaging uh, the government to show them what, what can happen. Um, but I think that like, yeah, around the politicization comment, I mean, Bitcoin is highly political. Um, there's no way around it. I mean, Bitcoin literally puts the power of money back into the hands of individuals. Um, there's arguably nothing much more political than that, uh, because where there's money, there's power. And I think that the most important thing for individuals to realize is that when you hold Bitcoin, no one can take it away from you. And that's a scary thing for for big banks specifically and for governments. And so I think that um, having them uh, kind of get involved and learning how to embrace it is a positive thing. But I and I and I don't want to. And Clay, I'd love your take on this too, Adam. I don't want to take us off on a tangent, but I think a lot of people are talking about the sort of libertarian angle on Bitcoin, which is obvious. Uh, but then you've also got there's sort of like a you could argue a real socialism angle to Bitcoin as well. If you look at what it's doing and doors it's opening, opportunities that it creates. Uh, in developing countries, I mean, El Salvador is the one that everybody's talking about, but they're not alone. Uh, it's not exclusively like a far right conservative lever, you know? Nah, Bitcoin is inclusive money, period. Our Canadian dollar is exclusive money. If you don't have a Canadian passport, it is very difficult for you to get a Canadian dollar. It is incredibly exclusive. If you don't have a home, if you have no address to put on your bank account, you cannot get the Canadian dollar. You cannot store the Canadian dollar. Uh, the Canadian dollar is exclusive money. Um, It is not inclusive money. Bitcoin is for everybody. Anybody in the world has the opportunity to own Bitcoin. And uh, there's nothing more inclusive than that. I've got a great comment here from Haas who who wants to talk about Earth Day. And you know we're going to talk about that, Adam, because I know that you want that question about the environmental impact of cryptocurrency. Uh, Kalea, let me ask you. I mean, you're obviously here with regards to the Canadian Blockchain Consortium. uh, You're the executive director. And a big part of the mandate, I know, is to to further educate people um, about, you know, basically what the blockchain industry is and its implications when it comes to future economic activity and growth and and attracting talent and creating business opportunities. Where does the average, where do you assess the average person sits when it comes to awareness of blockchain? Like if you stop 10 people on the street, how many of those 10 would be able to give you an adequate or accurate answer? Um, maybe one. Yeah. (laughs) 
I would say that there's still a lot of um, mystification around blockchain. And part of that has to do with, with the media. People tie Bitcoin and blockchain in together, understandably so. The first issuance of blockchain was the platform that Bitcoin, which was the product, came out of. So people tie them very heavily. So when they hear crypto, they automatically think blockchain and they don't really understand what that technology is or how that can support uh, on the enterprise side. We are here trying to help with that level of education because you can't really have adoption of a technology or a product like Bitcoin unless there's an education about the why. Why is this impactful for you? Why do you need this? Why is sound money critical to be able to you know, store your time in wealth in a way that's going to be able to translate decades down the road as opposed to our current monetary system, which is full of inflation, which means they're just robbing your time because your, your money is devaluing almost at a daily basis thanks to our current government and their money printing. But uh, we're, we're definitely not seeing enough understanding of it. So we're trying to put as much education as we can. We have free classes that come out every month. We're partnered with Nate. We're developing out their entire curriculum program on blockchain so people can have a better understanding of what it is. And we advocate very strongly for Bitcoin specifically because we feel that that is sound money and outside of the other cryptocurrencies, this one is a really great way to help focus people and give them an education on economics, which is sadly lacking in our education system right now. They don't understand economics hmm. at all. I want to ask both of you this, Kalea, you first, but can, can we go up on the on the three screen? Because I'm, I'm almost just curious to see Adam's face, because I, this, is, this is Adam's passion. Adam loves it when people doubt Bitcoin. Adam loves it when people toss hand grenades at Bitcoin. But Kalea, I want to ask you first, with, with regards to hurdles to overcome and public opinion, when you're talking about sound money and the future of finance, and partnering up with post-secondary institutions. Bitcoin and the conversation around cryptocurrency has come a long way, but there's still work to be done. A lot of people, I don't have to tell you to, still dismiss it. They're still cynical. Some people think it's a scam, right? A lot of people really have no time to even discuss it. So, so how does Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or the blockchain, and maybe it's unfair to loop them all together, but how do you get over that hump when it comes to public opinion? Education's got to be number one, but do you see it getting there inevitably? Absolutely. Um, I would almost equate that to when people originally said like the internet and the dot-com bubble, everyone's like, oh my God, it's a scam. Look at this bubble. Look at how it's going to bust. But you look at this now almost 30 years down the road since this bubble and Amazon.com. Um, Google, dot, like everything is a dot com. People use the internet without even understanding the internet at this point because it's so widely adopted. People use money without understanding money because it's our medium of exchange. When it comes to Bitcoin, I try to help people understand what Keynesian economics is versus Austrian economics on a very, very high level. It's really simple to explain. You're saving $100 today. What could you buy with $100 20 years ago? What could you buy today? And this go, this is inflation. If you want to maintain your spend power long-term, you need to invest in sound money. And when I explain sound money to people, I just explain this is money that's backed by an asset. This is a digital asset. And this particular asset has actual known scarcity to it. And when you know that you only have a certain limited amount of the money, it's a supply and demand issue. You have a limited supply of Bitcoin. You're going to have an unlimited demand of it, which means Bitcoin's exponential value is only going to increase. Where with our fiat currency system, you have an unlimited supply of it. You have no idea how much the government's going to produce on a daily basis, which means you have no security in it. You have no ability to know how much you need to save for tomorrow because you have no idea how much they're going to produce for you. So when people start realizing that their savings is literally diminishing on a daily basis, 
it helps them kind of create that that nugget, their seed in their brain to go, okay, I think I need to pay attention. Now what's next? I go read the Bitcoin standard by Safedine. If that book doesn't orange pill you, come back. There's more books I can give you, but that is the best book to start with. And most people after that are like, how do I get my hands on Bitcoin? Oh my God, I need it. So Adam, if you look into your crystal ball, what happens uh, whether it's uh, political policy or whether it's economic activity or, or, or whether it's action from big banks or whatever. What happens to convince the doubters, the critics, that Bitcoin is here to stay? That this is a legitimate conversation that when the premier or somebody who wants to be prime minister starts talking about it, this isn't just messaging to a specific pigeonholed part of the vote. It's not that. It's a bigger conversation. What happens to get the conversation there? I think what's happening now, I mean, look at look at inflation right now, 6% inflation, highest in 30 years. Um, I, I mean, that stated inflation, in my opinion, if you ask me, I think is a lot higher than that. But let's go with the, with, with the stated number, 6%. Half a percent of your savings account disappears every single month. Think about that for a minute. Half a percent of your wages, half a percent of your savings, half a percent of your child's inheritance, of your eventual grandkids' inheritance is getting eroded by the month. And we're not done printing money yet. I think to build on Kalea's point, like everyone in the world now should understand supply and demand economics. When you have limited supply, supply chain, supply chain, supply chain, supply chain, limited supply, prices go up. Couple that with the unlimited supply of money, prices go down. Bitcoin has limited supply, ergo value should increase over time, especially. Bitcoin is a savings account, not an investment account. Kolea, I want to note, like we're talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, which and, and there's a difference there, too, and a distinction to be made there. But we're also talking about the blockchain and, and they're related, but not necessarily aligned all the time. They are different entities, different conversations. You're here uh, representing the Canadian Blockchain Consortium. We've got a lot of business owners, a lot of movers and shakers that subscribe to the show, that listen to the show, that are going to want to know how do they equip themselves up? How do they scale up? How do they prepare themselves to succeed in a new economy, in a digital economy, so to speak. What are a couple tips that, that you heard shared at, uh, at this tech symposium this week? What are a couple of the principles that you share with people, business leaders, investors, when you talk to them on a daily basis? Um, so I always try to explain to people that like you don't need to put a blockchain on everything. Like Blockchain is a tool, it's a widget, but when you're going to look at you know digitizing your organization, you really wanna look at a holistic solution. Maybe you're looking at IoT. Maybe if you're doing manual paper entry, you need to look at data, like a Google Sheet, something like that. If you're going into a blockchain, what's the purpose of that blockchain? How is it going to impact your business? And when I talk to people, I always get them to look more in a futuristic manner. Like let's let's give a, a wild example, and this doesn't quite have to do with blockchain, but let's look at how Tesla has already let, hit stage two of their autonomous vehicles. They're, when they hit stage four, you no longer need a human interface for a vehicle. What's that going to mean for the economy? moving forward. So cities right now make revenues off of parking lots. They make off of parking meters. What's going to happen if your vehicle is fully autonomous? Why would you drive it to work and leave it there? Why would you pay a parking fee? No, you can use it like an Uber. You can get other people to work. You can make revenue off of it, which means cities are going to lose out on revenue moving forward. If I owned a parking lot, I'd be selling it today because I know in 10 years from now, autonomous vehicles are going to be the wave of the future, right? If I was a dealership, now uh, Tesla is looking at basically fractional ownership of vehicles. If I was a dealership, what's that going to mean if I'm no longer able to sell some of these vehicles 
vehicles through through what I'm doing right now. And Tesla's also looking at being their own insurance provider. They're gonna underwrite their vehicles. Now you could have fractionalized ownership, which means you don't have to own your own car. You don't have to do the park and flies. You don't have to park downtown. Like there are ways that technology is going to disrupt your industry. So if people have a mindset like a blockbuster in terms of, oh, you know, like my business is going to stay the same way forever, or I don't really have to adopt technology, your business isn't gonna last for another five years. So look at how technology today is transforming in AI, IoT, and blockchain. What could that mean for you today? But most importantly, what's that going to mean for you tomorrow? How is that going to disrupt your business? And if you're not going to be fluidic and consistently change what you're doing to make sure you're adapting to this new wave of technology, you're not going to stand a chance to survive. When you mentioned Blockbuster, it's always such a wake-up call, right? I mean, it was just like this titan. of It just had like essentially a monopoly, maybe not technically, uh, and then just squandered it. What a fascinating case study. Um the both of you I know have places to be. Adam wants to go fill his lungs with the fresh Banff air. But, of course, I have to mention the fact that it is Earth Day. And, Adam, I know that for a lot of people, one of the big objections against cryptocurrency, Bitcoin in particular, relates to the mining of it and how energy intensive that exercise is. And I know that you and your company have welcomed these types of questions. So why don't we talk about that today? We've discussed it in past. People can go back to your past interviews on Real Talk to, to discuss the environmental impacts of Bitcoin. But in the context of Earth Day today, what is the industry doing? What's your company doing? And, and how do you answer those objections around the environmental impact of Bitcoin? I think that Bitcoin is uh, one of the most important things for the earth and for the sustainability of the earth for two reasons. One, sound money. We can't have a solid earth if uh, if we don't have sound money. If we're unable to save and thrive in the future, we cannot have a sustainable earth. But two, specifically as it relates to mining, the Bitcoin mining industry is one of, if not the only industry actually monetarily incentivized to innovate and make sustainable energy. Now, what I mean by that is their number one ongoing cost, the only true ongoing cost to mining Bitcoin is power. And so this industry is, is required and is incentivized, heavily, heavily incentivized with money and profits and, and, and stakeholder and shareholder value to, in to innovate in that production of energy. So for an example, we've invested in a company um, called Imperium Digital, and they take the stranded gas, what would otherwise be flared, otherwise lit on fire and, lit, and, and sent into the atmosphere, and they take that power, send it through a genset to power Bitcoin. So that's like, that's, that's doubly good, right? Mm. It takes away the flare gas and it's powering sound money. So I think that as we continue, like, stranded gas should be offensive to every single Alberta on in the province. Like, Everyone should be offended that we are just literally lighting energy on fire. And the Bitcoin industry has found a way to capitalize and ensure the security and the integrity of the Bitcoin blockchain by using it. Um, you, you know, you're talking about selling your power back to the grid. Uh, you're talking about how the government or, or, or uh, I forget what the term was, but you only get six cents when we know we're paying like, right. you know, upwards of 15, 17 cents. Why would you sell it back to the grid when you can just mine Bitcoin, right? If you have solar powers on your roof as a consumer today and you have extra power that you don't need for your house, then you should mine Bitcoin because that's a way to accumulate Bitcoin in micro, micro um, sessions and be able to use that excess energy, which is green, which is already good. Um, you're not requiring that big uh, infrastructure in order to take it out and send it out. Um, you can just use it right there. Bitcoin is a way to move energy um, across the world. And as we innovate, as we learn new ways to, to use energy, to create energy, um, uh, I think that the Bitcoin industry is, is the number one cause driving that. Hmm. Coleo, you look like you want to jump in. So badly. So one, in terms of Bitcoin mining, there's been a very negative 
uh, perception of it. And a lot of it has to do with the media, but one has to do with uh, China originally had a lot of it. Since China has pretty much banned Bitcoin, or, or proof of work mining, we're seeing an exodus. Almost 60% of the hash rate that was on coal mining in China is no longer there. We're seeing it in other areas. We're seeing it in Denmark, in Norway, in, in Canada, North America, and they're coming on to wind power. They're coming on to solar. They're coming on to natural gas, which is extremely clean. When it comes to Bitcoin mining, it's called perspective as well. So Bitcoin mining takes up not as much space as people would like to think. Christmas lights in North America alone over six weeks take up as much energy as Tanzania, El Salvador, and one other small country do in an entire year. That's just Christmas lights. That is completely wasted energy. It's all on perspective. If people understood the amount of energy required for data centers just for Google to produce itself, for your uh, existing banking infrastructure, for everything else, for the data centers that are already existing, if people understood how much energy that actually consumed bitcoin only takes up 0.5 percent of global energy usage so it's all around the perspective it's all around the phrasing and right now in alberta we have so much islanded energy an incredible amount and we're not able to get it on on boat they have literally blocked our ability to sell any of it it's not allowed to access a boat to go on water they block our pipelines this is an opportunity for alberta to sell its islanded energy on the internet we have a way of getting it out there, of supporting the ecosystem and not taxing the grid and doing it in a way that would literally create a net neutral. Hmm. Like it wouldn't create a lot of carbon emissions. We could take the waste gases that are there right now, we could power generators with them and we could be able to create sustainable mining and Alberta could take at least 20% of the global hash rate standalone right now. And our CBC is working right now on a strategy with our government to be able to make that happen. I, uh, I I resonate uh, with Tracy's message here in our live chat, and I want to dedicate this Real Talk Roundtable to Tracy, who says, all this conversation, it just sounds to me like the teacher and Charlie Brown. You remember that one? Like, <laughs> Tracy says, I get none of it. She says, I feel like a dinosaur. Like, is there a Bitcoin for dummies book? Like, something that talks to me like I'm four years old? Tracy, I am you. You are me. That's why we have these roundtables, and that's why I know that our two guests are going to want me. And they're here because of this Alberta Tech Symposium that went on. They're here because of all this conversation about the, the financial and economic implications here. And, and I don't want to be left behind. I don't want to be not understanding it to the point that I can't talk about it with my friends or I can't understand how it applies to our own, law, our own life. And maybe it does and maybe it doesn't. Uh, like I've got another great comment here from Jillian who's, who says the problem with tech folks and a lot of these arguments is that they don't seem to understand people as, as well as they understand tech. Like vehicle sharing, like people have babies and kids and soccer games and family trips and parking won't be obsolete. And Jillian does have a point, like not everything is for everybody, but there are trends and opportunities. And I think that this is an audience and we want to draw on guests that understand how to speak to those. You know what I'm saying, Adam? I know you're nodding your head. Yeah. Um, first off, on the education piece, uh, go to bitcoinwell.com slash learn. There are free resources there. We've developed a Bitcoin Academy in partnership with Athabasca University uh, to really explain Bitcoin, the importance of it and why that's there. We also host Bitcoin for Beginners every single month, absolutely free. Ryan's man, uh, Benny, um, he's he's uh, he's a big part of that. And he's he's largely the one that's uh, that's teaching it. And, um, and so I would definitely encourage everyone who has questions to go there, bring the tough questions, ask the tough questions, and make sure that you do not participate until you are comfortable participating. I think that's the most important piece. Um, I think as far as like those comments, um, I, I don't know. I think that 20 years ago, if you would have told me that I would be um, have a computer uh, with no wires in it, talking uh, over, over camera, 
uh, to someone who's 400 kilometers away um, and you'd be able to see and, and, and hear me in, in, in real time. I think even 10 years ago, that was a bit of a fallacy. Um, I, think, I think 20 years ago, if you would have said you would have had a computer in your pocket. I think when I was in school, I was told I would never have a calculator in my pocket at all times. Um, I do. Um, I think that um, things change quite rapidly and technology changes quite rapidly. Um, the idea of an autonomous, of a self-driving car um, was was insane 10 years ago. And I know firsthand, Ryan, as you do, um, that my car drives itself, uh, drives itself every single day. And uh, I'm at the wheel, obviously, but uh, the technology exists that I don't really need to be. Um, so I think that 10 years is a long time in this industry. And I, and I, and I absolutely agree, resonating with the, with the comments, like things, things change and, 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 and the world uh, sometimes seems to move very, very slow. But I think that, you know, it moves a lot faster than some of us realize. And um, uh, I would love to be able to, to, you know, learn how to like talk in a way that is um, more educational. Absolutely. Um, and so I think this is a, th- this is good insight. I appreciate both of your availability today. Uh, we always, on this show, we say we seek to understand, and that includes trends and economic activity and incentives and, and the way that politics weaves its way into commerce and all this kind of stuff and uh, fascinating subject matter. My thanks to uh, both of our guests, the CEO of Absolute Combustion International. She's the executive director of the Canadian Blockchain Consortium. They just hosted the Alberta Tech Symposium just this week. That's uh, Clay Carrington and Adam O'Brien, of course, CEO of Bitcoin. Well, Canada's first publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company and the presenting sponsor of this show. Have a great weekend, both of you. And thanks for doing this. Thanks so much. Yeah, you got it. There's a, an interesting trend, isn't there? We talk about the self-driving car thing. Yeah. You and I were talking about this off air. There's now a, 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 and it's not the only vehicle manufacturer that's doing this, but we're now seeing it on commercials. They're advertising the self-driving. Have you seen the one where the SUV or the truck pulls out to pass the semi on the, on the highway? Yeah. And it's like self-driving and it pulls out to pass. And I'm going, and people have made good points to me because I've talked about this with friends and they go, yeah, but keep in mind the more vehicles, I think a real talker emailed us about this. If I remember correctly, they say the more autonomous or self-driving vehicles on the road, the more they can communicate with one another. And the safer it is. So they, so they won't actually, like they won't crash head on mm-hmm. or they're not supposed to anyway, but they won't crash head on because they're all communicating and they all know where yeah. each other are. But at the same time, I'm, I'm sitting there looking at this commercial of this, this SUV and they're saying the self-driving technology and it pulls out and passes a truck, which to me is always the white knuckle part of driving on the highway, especially undivided highways. And, and you go, man, if they're advertising that, yeah. which means obviously it's made its way through how many lawyers, it's mm-hmm. made its way through how many boardroom sessions and they've agreed that it's now legit enough Mm -hmm. reliable enough they can advertise it i mean change is upon us my friend that commercial really freaks my wife out because she hates the self-driving cars but it's remember the minority report the movie with tom cruise there was like zero uh in the future zero car crashes because they're all automated they have no drivers they're all on tracks that like they all self-drive themselves so i'm excited for it but i still won't if when people do it when i'm in the car i'm like Put your hands on the wheel. Are you the guy that would miss driving? No. No. If it be... got safe enough, I'd take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's there yet, but you know. I, what I mean? still feel like I would miss driving. I'm not miss driving all the time. I mean, it would be sweet to sort of set it and forget it, as they say, and then and you just you know you snooze for four hours and you wake up at the yeah. ski hill. I was just gonna say I'd take a twenty minute nap on the way to the show every morning. But for people. <laughs> But for people that that are like the collectors of classic cars or that love the feel of the leather wrapped steering wheel or mm-hmm. whatever, I just there's always going to be that. Of course. Crew that's always going to want to drive. Yeah. 
Yeah. We should poll <laughs> Real Talkers and find out. But in terms of like public transportation, I could see it being like that eventually, you know, buses and whatever, if they could, you know, be in that lane all the time and they're all autonomous. What about the trucking industry? I mean, think of how much that's going to change in the next... Now, now you're pissing off truckers who are listening right now. No, but I think, but, but, but this is like the spirit of, of the roundtable we just had. Is, 100%. You know, if you're in the restaurant industry or the trucking industry or whatever, if you're a teacher or if you're a lawyer, like how are these changes going to impact your profession? And if you're in the trucking industry, and that's not on your radar right now mm-hmm. I don't know what to tell you And I do realize that as we're talking about this It means, you know, jobs going away So, I'm But also be, new opportunities trying to be New opportunities Like 100%. People always talk about like whatever happened to all the telephone operators or The switchboard operators when, when, when telephones became more automated Well, there were other opportunities, I'm sure uh-huh. Whatever happened to the people that used to fill up the street lamps In London with whale blubber, <laughs> right? Like they, they found other jobs Probably running wires to install the new electric street lamps I, just, I don't know I just got a flash of like Mary Poppins The movie, how he's up there like lighting them Blowing them out Yeah, Mary Poppins, I'll have what she's having <laughs> Speaking of the pleasure of driving, I call up SherwoodDodge.com and and what does it show me right out of the gates? The 2022 Dodge Challenger. Like, this is a car that you want to drive. This is a car you want to get behind the wheel and hammer down on the skinny pedal. Like actually drive. Like actually drive it. I'm seeing it go... No, I better not. I'm seeing it safely five kilometers an hour under the speed limit. Observing all posted signs, but looking good doing it. You can find the 2022 Dodge Challenger, the whole Dodge lineup, including the wildly popular Ram 1500. That's what I'm driving right now at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. They're proud of not just their sales records. Yeah, of course, they're always leading the province in those categories. But the service, the return business of their customers. Find out what that's all about. Find out why we are proud to partner when you go visit them in person at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Same deal, when you swing on by the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, you make sure you mention in the drive-thru window or at the counter that you're there. You know, you're a real talker. You're here because they are supporting your favorite podcast. I hear from the families that own these locations, uh, the, the Liebers and the Cardinals, and they tell us that it just brings a smile to their face when a real talker rolls in to order the Flamethrower Signature Stack Burger. Make it a triple. Because Jespo told you to. That's my personal recommendation this week. And you notice I've moved on from the loaded steakhouse signature stack burger. I checked out the flamethrower. It's got a little more oomph to it. You're making the rounds. Yeah. Wyatt texted me yesterday. He's six years old. Uses mom's phone. Texted me. And I fired back with the three fire. He goes, why are you sending me fire, daddy? I said, because you're a hot tamale, kiddo. (laughs) The Flamethrower Signature Stack Burger, one of six new additions to the Dairy Queen lineup. You can find them in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. Well, every Friday, our friends at Local Environmental give us an opportunity to to blow off a little steam, to, to get stuff off our chest, to leave our broadcast week, so to speak, with everything on the table. It's a feature we call Trash Talk. This one from Denise, who says, Jesperson, if you don't bring Calgary's Poet Laureate Wakefield Brewster back, there will be a follow-up email, and it will be in the Trash Talk category 
Thank you for introducing him to us. Denise, I wanted to put it in there anyway to let you know that we are in love with Wakefield Brewster, and he will be back on the show. Mark my words. If you missed his appearance on the show, make sure you check it out. Before his Wi-Fi cuts out, I called him maybe Canada's most compelling communicator. I love what he brought to the table. Can you load up Canada's permanent ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray's tweet? Now, Bob Ray didn't send it to us. He didn't submit it for Trash Talk, but I loved this, and I wanted to include it. He says, Mariupol, the Ukrainian city is not a city of ruins and twisted steel, nor is it the worst images seen so far. It is a real place where people lived, loved, hoped, struggled, and now suffered and died. We must not be bystanders to the outrage of their killing. Twitter chroniclers only do more. I love that. Holding our feet to the fire. Do more, says Bob Ray. What does that mean? Let's think about it this weekend and come back with ideas next week. Here's an email to the Prime Minister from Jerry on, no, Jeremy on Pender. Shout out to Pender Island today. BC Real Talkers, what's up? Jeremy says, PMJT, I'm disgusted. I remember years ago when Canada was scolded for shipping its trash to third world countries. We were assured by your government this would change. And here we are, not even a slowdown. We even have a Greenpeace activist as our environment minister. This activity supports exploitation of vulnerable people in other countries to process our recyclables for cheaper. This is called externalizing pollution. Jeremy says when it comes to recycling, that's supposed to mean reusing products. So we don't need to mine materials to create more. Not burning it in incinerators in third world countries where it's illegal but not enforced. If it can't be recycled, it should be banned. Prime Minister, it's time to deal with Canada's actual pollution. That from Jeremy on Pender. And how about this one? Last word today from Rylan who says, gotta be honest, gotta keep it real. I was a bit appalled Ryan to see what, 3% of respondents to your Twitter poll yesterday saying they were going to get off their ass and do something to recognize Earth Day today. 3%? Like 3 Three out of every hundred are going to do one small thing to say thank you to the planet we call home. Three out of every hundred are going to carpool today or ride their bike or take transit for the first time in their life or turn down the thermostat by a degree or pick up the trash in their back alley or green space or change a light bulb or go price out a low flow toilet or fill up a stainless steel water bottle on the go or do one other tiny little thing to, I don't know, participate. We're so lazy and so, I don't know, Ryland says, thank you, Mother Earth. Mad respect. And as you say, Rye, much love. Have a great weekend, Real Talkers. That from Ryland right back at you, pal. These are real emails received to talk at ryanjesperson.com, proudly presented by Local Environmental. Coming up next week, we're going to take on some of those stories we've just touched on, including the war in Ukraine. And we're taking the show out to Jasper for a couple of days. That's right. Real Talk Road Trip. Don't miss a minute. In the meantime, tell your friends, like, share, subscribe. Subscribe, and we'll talk to you Monday. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer, John Hicks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Lawrence Derlego. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.